I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views was brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews, and those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have three separate guests on distinct topics. Later on in the program, we'll be hearing from Nasser Arabi, a Yemeni-based journalist, to discuss the ceasefire in Yemen. Also, Mondo Weiss's Yumna Patel will be joining us to discuss Israel... Palestine, and the question of apartheid, the subject of her new documentary, Inside Israeli Apartheid, available now on YouTube. But first, we're going to be speaking with returning guest William Hoagland of the Hoagland's Bad History blog on Substack and author of such rip-snorting popular histories as the Whiskey Rebellion, and Autumn of the Black Snake. He joins us on this edition of the show to discuss the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion that will, if finalized, overturn Roe v. Wade, thus setting back the many gains made by pro-choice activists on the abortion issue in recent decades. In this conversation, Hoagland and I will focus specifically and mostly on the way the draft opinion claims that it is based on deeply held national history and tradition. What exactly does that mean? Well, we're going to get into that and what it could entail for the future with William Hoagland, once again, of Hoagland's Bad History. 
Now, on to the conversation. Welcome back to Parallax Views. One of my uh, all-time favorite guests, uh, I believe this is his third time on the show, William Hoagland of Hoagland's Bad History on Substack and author of a number of great books, including my favorites, The Whiskey Rebellion and The Autumn of the Black Snake. How are you doing, William? Great. Thanks for having me back. So I wanted to talk about this piece you wrote uh, entitled Deeply Rooted in This Nation's History and Tradition, The Bad History in Alito's Draft Overturning Roe vs. Wade. Uh, Maybe you could just talk in brief about uh, your initial reactions to uh, the leaked opinion by Supreme Court Justice uh, Alito uh, regarding overturning Roe vs. Wade. Well, I mean, I had a pretty, you know, I guess like a lot of people, I had a kind of a gut reaction, um, I guess, as everyone's saying, oh, it's no surprise looking at the composition of the court uh, that, you know, they're out to overturn Roe versus Wade. But when you actually see it there and, you know, written down, it's kind of like, wow, they're really doing it. Um, you know, maybe, probably, you know, definitely trying. Um, so my, re- my, my actual, my first reaction was pretty emotional. Um, because I just think that's a, a huge disaster for the equality and liberty of uh, so many people. And so, I mean, you know, my first reaction was kind of on that level. I, um, I'm interested in the kind of the, you know, it's, it's the, thought, the thought process behind it involving this idea of, you know, what Alito calls, he's quoting actually from another opinion, but which is also quoting from another opinion, because that's what that's what they do. It's not that's not weird in itself. But this idea that certain rights can only be protected if they are deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and, quote, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, end quote. I mean, you know, that that raises, you know, bigger issues for me, even beyond this particular case about how things get protected, how rights get protected, how we look at rights. Um, which just um, points me in directions that, you know, I don't know, get get pretty shaky um, when we're talking about uh, concepts like that, like that a right is protected only if it's deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. I mean, it just raises a billion questions about what that's supposed to mean. And that's what I just sort of tried to assuage my upset or anger or disappointment in, you know, what's really been my lifetime. as an adult um, regarding the protection of certain rights, I just trying to figure out where does that come from and what do they mean by it and where are they getting that stuff? Yeah, it's, it's kind of confusing for me because uh, even when we look at the history of the, the legality of abortion in the US, I mean, you can go back to points in history where, you know, abortion was pretty much legal up until you know, quickening during the first trimester. Um, so it's it's not as if, you know, I, I think there's a lot of historical debate about um, the, the legality of abortion uh, e- even before this moment. Um, and I also think there were times in our country where um, it wasn't as controversial in some ways. Um, maybe that's going a little bit too far with how I'm wording it, but I, I think you get what I'm saying. It, it feels like uh, there's a lot of bad history at work. <laughs> In, in regards to this decision? The, uh, there's, there's some good stuff out there right now by historians who, who focus on that kind of thing and, and 
legal scholars too. Um, the historian Holly Brewer has a thread on Twitter people might want to look at for exactly what you're talking about. Um, this, this idea that uh, this idea that actually, and this this is you know this is part and parcel of Roe versus Wade. I mean, there's a lot of this in the Blackman's opinion of in Roe versus Wade also regarding the fact that for you know for many many years this, this uh, abortion was not in common law, an early term abortion was not in common law um, indictable really. And Blackman goes to some lengths to show that. And uh, I would check out uh, Holly Brewer's Twitter feed. Um, Jennifer Schistler at the New York Times did a piece about sort of history wars in, the, in these matters just on a fact, you know, just on a fact, historical fact aspect of it. Um, and I just saw this, and I, so I don't know the author's name. I just saw this like seconds ago. Somebody posted it as a comment on my, on my, uh, my, my post of yesterday. Um, the, an article in Slate uh, showing, giving uh, Benjamin Franklin's uh, abortion recipe, basically, um, in a math book that he published to no, you know, no, no, no negative response at all, just as an example of what you're talking about. Um, I guess, you know, that's all true. The issue I end up getting at is more like the his because, you know, there are people who are much more up on the stuff you're raising right now than I'm ever going to be. I, I, as, a, as a kind of a reader, in a way, a reader of these opinions, I, I just the history of how these ideas get transferred through uh, court opinions, ideas of, that there are deeply rooted histories and traditions and that there are, there's a concept of ordered liberty, which has certain things implicit in it and other things not implicit in it, supposedly, um, or evidently, according to the people who raise these things. I mean, that's the kind of the, the piece of the history that I, I was focusing on, just trying to get, like, how is this, how is this stuff coming down to us, these ideas? Um, about, you know, deeply rooted stuff and history and tradition. And, you know, and then whose who's traditions and, and uh, what's included in that and what's, what's supposed to be left out uh, and so forth. And that's kind of the, the history, the rabbit hole I went down uh, yesterday, I guess it was, maybe the day before. <laughs> um, it's kind of a blur to me right now, but that's a rabbit hole, you know, and I, I kind of went down partway down it and, and that's what I was kind of trying to report on. So with regards to that rabbit hole, uh, it, it seems like a lot of this comes back around to, and may, we'll have to define terms here a bit if, if that's okay with you, but um, I guess the way we interpret the Constitution, there's a whole sort of notion known as originalism. Could you speak to that and how it uh, may connect to all of this? Well, I, I don't know if, I, if it does, actually. I mean, you know, originalism, there's a kind of simple originalism um, that I think we're kind of we're used to, I mean, you know, the idea that nothing that's not explicitly stated in the Constitution as, as being protected constitutionally is can be constitutionally protected. It's kind of like when Madison uh, went after Hamilton's banking bill, he said, you know, this is uh, unconstitutional because there's nothing in the Constitution that says Congress has power to start a bank. It does have the power to start an army because that's in the Constitution. It does have power to do certain other things, but it doesn't have there's no enumerated power to start a bank. Hamilton's argument was that, well, if there's a power to do certain things regarding finance and if starting a bank is part of those things, then it doesn't have to be enumerated. It's just part and parcel. And that was an argument, you know, that they had actually ha Madison, you know, it's, it Madison went back on that idea himself. It, it was, you know, to some extent, it's just largely even in its origins, the origin of originalism in that sense is largely politically motivated. Um, but th but this 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 idea that that Alito's uh, kind of 
relying on and referring back to is um, is a little different from that because right there in the beginning of his um, of his draft opinion he says um, you know he says some people he kind of paraphrasing some people say that you know there are rights guaranteed through the Fourteenth Amendment that are not mentioned in the Constitution but if there are they have to be deeply rooted in blah blah and implicit in the concept of blah 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 um, so he's kind of not saying that there are no rights not mentioned in the Constitution that aren't protected via the 14th. He's saying that to the extent that there are, they have to meet this test. And the test is called the Glucksburg test. Uh, Washington versus Glucksburg, right? There you go. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, Justice Kavanaugh uh, referred to it repeatedly or a couple of times anyway in, in his testimony when he was in his confirmation hearing as kind of you know, that's that's the best. That's that's where you have to go and look. And that's where Alito's looking. That's where Kavanaugh looks. All roads lead to Glucksburg, said uh, Kavanaugh. Um, and so that's where and it's specifically where the language uh, that this this rootedness language, uh, Alito, uh, that's what he's that's where he's get, that's where he's getting it. So he's he's got you know, he's got precedent. They always have to have precedent. It's just I'm kind of interested in like, well, how do these precedents work, especially as a matter of you know, when they get into ideas about history and tradition, quote unquote, you know, what are they talking about and what's the history of of them passing these ideas down to each other through these court cases? So maybe you could expound on that a bit more. Where, where do you think, uh, you know, these ideas of tradition, uh, quote unquote, come from? And what, what, what do you think's driving, um, you know, uh, figures like Alito? Well, it's hard to ascribe motive. I mean, like I, I know I, I, we shouldn't get too know. speculative, but <laughs> I mean, personally, or you know, I, you know, it's more like what's driving this. You know, to me, it's more like what's driving this whole tendency. Um, where where are they trying to get to? And you start going back through the through the precedents, the things they cite as precedent. I mean, Glucks, the Glucksburg all roads lead to the Glucksburg test. I mean, Glucksburg test just sounds like something out of some, I mean, because I'm not a lawyer, you know, I just kind of laugh a little bit and go, the Glucksburg, oh, the Glucksburg test. So I have to find out what it is because I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I'm just interested in what this, where this stuff's coming from. And um, the Glucksburg case is, uh, an, uh, the opinion in Glucksburg was written by Justice Rehnquist. And he too, where he too says, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, so rooted that uh, it's, it can be ranked as fundamental and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, such that neither liberty nor justice would exist if they were sacrificed. These are the standards that have to be up, supposedly upheld for certain rights to be protected. And again, you know, again, Rehnquist is um, is quoting earlier cases there, citing earlier cases there. Rehnquist throws in the idea that you know these things, these these light rights and liberties that can be protected even if they're not enumerated have to be objectively, he says, that's Rehnquist, objectively, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. And I mean, that's quite a word to use there, because you're talking about pretty big, glowing, even poetic concepts like deep rootedness in a nation's history and tradition and rooted in the conscience of our people. I mean, objectively proving that those things are or aren't, it seems like it's just a quite a word to throw in there between he just tosses it in between commas so he's drawing on a tradition himself you know it's interesting because you you mention a a, a few cases 
like this, where there's this sort of very strong poetic language used, uh, like, uh, you know, I think it was the uh, Snyder versus Massachusetts case where, uh, you know, the, the language of, uh, of the very essence is used and whatnot. So there, there's a lot of cases where you have this language that is used uh, that, that almost has like a poetic quality to it. <laughs> Yeah, a kind of epic. I mean, of the very essence, I think actually is legal uh, is is a term of art in the in the law. Um, but I mean, it can, but it's being connected there in that Snyder case with the kind of the very essence of a scheme of ordered liberty. And and when you say it's like not of the very essence, like it can't be ranked as such by a you know a people in the conscience of our people. It's the kind of conscience of our people stuff that starts to get into kind of national epic. You know, who are these people and, and what does their conscience say? And, you know, yeah, you know, you could make you could you could define the people any way you want and say this is not part of the conscience of the, this is not something that speaks to the conscience of the people. And someone else can say, well, yes, I define the people either the same way you do or differently. And it does. This does go to the conscience of the people. I mean, it just gets into this rather abstract area with a, na a sense of a national spirit, sort of. Um, and then making hard and fast statements, you know, using Rehnquist, like objectively hard and fast statements about what those con what such a conscience will and won't admit leads us. I mean, I'll just, you know, uh, I said, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I mean, kind of my part of my point is I don't think you have to be a lawyer. Uh, you just have to be a, a reader kind of to just as you track these things down, get to a place where like there's a great deal of oratory involved here at this very high level of national law and how the nation wants to look at what rights are protected. And, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer, but there are times when some of the writing in some of these cases and these opinions gets, you know, doesn't seem that lawyerly either, including in Alito's, including in Alito's, like what we would, what we would hope lawyerly means, which is kind of like, here's a bulletproof argument leading from point to point to point that leads to this inescapable conclusion, which maybe is be a fantasy of what being lawyerly is like. But at the constitutional level, I just think it gets it just opens up big questions for citizens about what we think we're doing here, really, with regarding law and rights and protections and equality, really, and equality. Real quick here, it, it's interesting. There were two lines that really stood out to me in your piece. Um, and I, I'll go with the one that shows up later first. Uh, uh, for all of the learned reference going back to and before Magna Carta, this kind of appeal to history is precisely subjective, even national mythopoetic. And I want to dissect that a little bit. But uh, the, the other quote that really stood out to me was, uh, along with Kavanaugh's and others elevating such stuff as the basis for a so-called hard and fast test, all of this suggests to me that the roots of the deep rootedness run pretty deeply into an Anglophile national fantasia wrapped in a wishful oratory framed in the passive voice. I guess in a way you just sort of covered that, but maybe you could explain uh, what you mean by like an Anglophile national fantasia. <laughs> that was I a mean, great line, you know, just brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. I, um, yeah, you know, I don't know. When it's read back to me, I'm kind of like, eh, you know, maybe I need to red pencil that a little bit. But uh, my point, I guess, is, you know, um, when you go back into some of these older cases, I mean, what you see, the, the cases they, they're, where they're drawing these language, this language from are not actually super famous to, to non-legal to non people. Like they, they, 
me like some of the other 14th Amendment cases, even the more conservative ones like Lochner and uh, Slaughterhouse and stuff. These are kind of, these seem like oddball cases to me just because I don't know them. So I'm looking at them and I'm just like realizing, oh, wow, you know, what's going on here is these are these, you know, these judges, uh, you know, one, we go back to um, the, the, there's a New Jersey case, um, Twining, the, ju the judge who wrote the opinion was born before the Civil War. And they're actually just sort of confronted with the 14th Amendment as, you know, changing really relationships between citizen states and the federal and federal prohibitions on what states can do. And it's like, it's all happening in real time for them back then. You know, these are, these are, you know, people who had, a, who did have a very strong sense that there was this kind of Anglo-American tradition of law, which is, you know, because there was, um, in, 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 and that, that it has, you know, that some of these issues go back to Magna Carta and even before to charter rights and things that are very deeply rooted, liberties that are very deeply rooted in a very powerful, long tradition. And now they're struggling with whether or not, you know, these traditions permit or don't permit certain kinds of new protections that in the original Founders Constitution hadn't been contemplated. And that's actually kind of amazing. I mean, they're, these are, you know, judges from a long time ago. Um, just trying to figure out not, none of the stuff that we've taken for granted for some years since some of the later 20th century 14th Amendment cases um, was sorted out at all. Like, not forget, like, you know, a Loving versus Virginia kind of case, which, you know, uh, which gets into questions about about racial equality. These 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 cases were like about whether someone had gotten a fair trial or not um, and, and so forth. And, and judges suddenly sort of forced in a way to reckon with pretty big time issues about what kinds of individual rights are, are actually protected now. So you, they just draw on a, on a tradition. I mean, you go back and read some of these opinions, these old opinions, they draw on very kind of intense historical traditions that definitely are kind of Anglophilic, traced back to the mother country, go back to Magna Carta. Um, and yeah, and at the same time, you know, in their era, I mean, it's a little more understandable because in their era, the, the centers of power were held by, you know, and were sort of known to be held by a very, very, very narrow group of people. Um, you know, white Protestant men of a certain class is what we're really talking about. That's a, that's a hundred years ago and more. Um, now we have the five justices on the current court who seem to have, you know, you're asking like, what's driving this? I mean, again, I, I don't want to, I don't necessarily see it in emotional terms, but like there's a nostalgia for that, for, for the period of a of 150 years, 100 plus years ago, maybe a nostalgia for a time before the 14th amendment was interpreted the way it is, or maybe a, a nostalgia for a time when, you know, these rights couldn't be, other rights too, couldn't be asserted with reference to the 14th. I mean, a couple of the cases that the Glucksburg test so-called relies on have been overturned. Um, so are we trying to get back to a past, you know, a past way of looking at these traditions of law that are, that are extremely narrow, even though ironically enough, the five justices themselves, you know, wouldn't have been on those courts in those days, the five justices who were most ardent about trying to revive this tradition. So I don't know what to make of all that. Um, but yeah, that's what I was trying to get at, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I think that really gets at uh, what you were saying. And also that line about sort of a, this appeal to the, the this sort of national mythopoetic um, 
sort of way of speaking and how that's meant to appeal uh, to the the quote unquote national spirit of a people. But as you point out, the question is, well, we, you know, which of the people, because it, it seems like, you know, the, the, the people in question, when we're talking about national spirit, uh, it ends up ruling out and, and basically taking out of history uh, those who are judged not to be part of that national spirit. Yeah, it's a nationalist spirit. You know, it's a nationalist history. And at that point, it's sort of like, well, they're just saying this does fit and this doesn't fit. Why? Because we say so, we've defined the national spirit this way. Which, you know, yeah, I guess I was trying to get at the idea that that entire line of thought just rules out anyone who doesn't see it their way as being part of the national spirit. It's it's solipsistic. It's totally self-referential and circular. But, you know, again, getting to your thoughts, your thoughts about like what's driving this. I mean, it does seem that whether it's uh, the intention or whether it's the effect, the effect is to rule out even of discussion, really, um, anyone who doesn't see it that way because they define the national spirit thusly, you know, and that's just that just doesn't feel like anything but, um, you know, pronounced dictatorial pronouncement. So before we start wrapping up here, I, I was also curious, and I know this is outside of the range of uh, the article, but I, I've noticed a lot of people um, that instead of focusing on the opinion itself are focusing on the fact that uh, this, uh, this was leaked, right? Alito's draft was leaked. What do you make of all the people doing that? And, and do you think it's like, in a lot of ways, I think they're missing um, other important aspects of this discussion, to put it mildly? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing to focus on. I mean, sure, it's rare, right? So it's news that something like this gets leaked. Um, but, you know, I, and the idea, I mean, there's a certain amount of, of stuff going on in social media where some people are like, well, that's it. You know, the court is now, its integrity is now shattered. Um, it'll never be able again to function properly. This is the, you know, the end of something big. I mean, I don't know, I guess time will tell. And obviously, you know, you know, you don't want your stuff leaked. I get that, uh, you know, but I mean, stuff's been leaked before. Roe was leaked. I read the other day. I did not know that until all this came up. Um, you know, the history of leaking is a whole story in and of itself. I mean, Thomas Paine leaked material, confidential material at the Continental Congress. It, it's not necessarily an admirable thing to do and under certain circumstances. In other cases, it has been quite admirable to leak stuff. And, you know, in this case, the idea that this would be the fundamental problem that we're dealing with is a court that can't withstand a leak like this. I mean, if, if it is in fact the end of the integrity of the court, well, then it's hard to see the court, the court, the court's integrity seemed maybe a bit flimsy then before the leak, if this is going to drive it, you know, over the edge. I mean, I, I find that entire, I mean, it's interesting that it was leaked. It's definitely going to continue to be interesting. And so we maybe find out who leaked it and why and so forth and what's going on in there, you know, in that black box. Um, but um, yeah, I don't really get why that's an overwhel the overwhelming and shocking fact of this particular news story just to me wasn't that it was leaked, although I was startled, but that's just startling. You know, I don't see it. I don't, it can't be the cause of the downfall of the Supreme Court of the United States, can it? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me because uh, it, it gets into an issue. I, I think a lot of people don't always want to look at 
in some ways, I, I think one could argue that uh, the Supreme Court uh, can be looked at in very peculiar ways. I mean, you know, I, I think we try to look at the Supreme Court as being completely objective. And you're sort of pointing out uh, maybe objectivity doesn't have as much to do with it as we want. Uh, it, it's a peculiar institution in some ways because, you know, in a way, the Supreme Court are theologians interpreting a document. Uh, and I think we want to believe that those interpreters, these theologians of the Constitution, um, are completely unbiased and completely objective. And I think what really scares people is the idea that maybe the interpreters aren't um, always going off a completely objective basis um, because, you know, every, everyone has their own interests and, and things they want to push. Like we all have our biases. None of us are, you know, above uh, uh, our own ideological biases and whatnot. And uh, in ways, I, I sometimes think that maybe that's why people want to shift the discussion to something else other than, you know, what this opinion means in and of itself. Yeah, that, that could be because it is, I guess it is scary. And it is scary because, I mean, just from a from certain point, I mean, from one point of view, you know, progressives have spent 50 years or so placing a great deal of hope and confidence in Supreme Court decisions as ways of protecting equal rights on many, many levels. And, you know, we already knew this academically, but now we find it, you know, it's, it's just some stuff underway where it's like, well, it's subject to a process in which, you know, those things can get overturned. And the idea that something is settled law or a super precedent or something is just not actually real. And then, you know, not that I have the answer to, or even a good idea, even a sketch of how to fix this, but um, this is what is so scary about some of this is that it, it is right now what's cracking open, I think from, from a progressive point of view, is kind of like, the confidence in the idea of rights that can be protected against the states by uh, Supreme Court decisions as kind of like, oh, we've, we've moved on, we've moved forward, as if there were no going back. Um, well, you know, that was never true, and now it's very obvious that it's not true. And the question becomes then, well, where, where do you put your, your hope and confidence for, you know, equality, equality before the law uh, in this country? And I'm not sure the answer is yeah, and the last thing I'll say is like, I think this is all a, a very worrying moment because, well, I, I'll try to put it as bluntly as I can, but, uh, you know, I was, I was reading a Vanity Fair piece um, about J.D. Vance recently, um, who's sort of become a darling of uh, the new right, as it's being called. Um, but he, he said something interesting. He, he was saying, oh, we are in a late Republican period and he's sort of uh, evoking this idea of America as a as as sort of being like Rome and awaiting its own Caesar. Um, and it's worrisome to me. I do think there is uh, a lot of elements of American society, or at least a significant enough portion, that is almost interested in uh, a sort of return of of the strong man, and that are that are sort of becoming more openly uh, Caesarist in their thinking. Um, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, this, this idea that we're seeing uh, a sort of 
right wing that is more interested in Caesarism than maybe um, democratic values. It is more open, I think, than it was. And, you know, it may even be changing. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, yeah, that, that, that Vance idea and this kind of, there's this kind of odd, you know, fanboy kind of history nerd kind of love of the strong traditions of the past, which often means strong men of the past. And, you know, uh, that's getting invoked now. Yeah. I mean, I know what you're talking about. It's, it's out there. It's happening. Um, certainly Trump's election was a, you know, actual real world, you know, phenomenon version of that. And yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's definitely worrying. So in closing here, uh, what do you hope that listeners get out of this conversation or your, your Substack post about the subject? And also, how can my listeners keep up with your work? Oh, um, you know, I hope you get out of, I don't know. I mean, I hope there's something to be gotten out of my, what was really, you know, I said at the end of the piece, like, I didn't know what to do today, so I did this. It's, it's kind of that. If that has resonance for, for people, that's great. Um, you know, it's kind of like in a, in a bad moment on a bad day. Uh, in our history, like trying to look at what the history of how what the history is that they're trying to invoke, kind of uh, that was useful for me. And if it's useful for others, great. Um, then then it's worth my doing. Um, I'm on Substack. You can find me. I call it bad, Hoagland's Bad History. Uh, if that's the that's the name of the uh, of the blog, which is really what it is. It's really not a newsletter. There's not much news in it. Um, but uh, I write about history and related to the to the crises that we're going through now. So people can find me there. And I'm on Twitter at William. It's also William Hoagland. It's H-O-G-E-L-A-N-D. One word, William Hoagland. You can find me there. And my books are easy to find. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, I enjoy the conversation. I, I, it's one of these it's one of these conversations which really like, where's this going? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. Thank you again, William Hoagland. Thank you very much. Next up, we're speaking with Nasser Arabi from Sana, Yemen, a journalist who I first learned of through the Scott Horton Show. He's been going on Scott Horton Show for, I think, seven years now since the crisis in Yemen, the Saudi-led assault on Yemen started, and he's been filling in the details for folks about what is actually unfolding in Yemen. And he's going to be speaking with us about the ceasefire that has been in effect since Ramadan, and why he is optimistic that this along with some other factors, could lead to peace. Oh, and by the way, there's even some discussion of Al-Qaeda and ISIS in Yemen, and how, if the war continues, this could threaten U.S. national security. More on that with Nasser Arabi in the conversation to follow. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on, a, a regular guest uh, on Scott Horton's show, who's a, a friend of the podcast, uh, Nasser Arabi. 
from Yemen. We're going to be talking about what's going on in Yemen. But first, how are you doing today? Uh, thank you very much. I'm okay. The, uh, nowadays, it's Eid, you know, after Ramadan. People are, you know, trying to, to be happy under this um, absurd war. Uh, it's okay. And it's raining nowadays. And the season of rainy also make people happy. So, Nasser, if you could, uh, what is currently happening uh, with regards to Yemen? I, I mean, you're, you're there. And also, uh, there's been a ceasefire. Is that still holding up? What is happening with that? The ceasefire is, is still holding. Um, but um, it's one month now. It's more than one month now since it uh, it's went into effect. Um, but uh, the conditions and uh, the terms and uh, uh, circumstances that uh, it should be associated with um, are not all there. But uh, it gives a lot of um, a lot of a lot of um, uh, optimism because it's the first since this war started seven years ago. So it's, it's okay. Um, and people are uh, uh, optimistic and uh, hopeful and waiting uh, this to, to turn into, into a permanent armistice, into uh, a peaceful solution for this war uh, altogether. So this, it sounds like this could be the, the closest we've gotten within those seven years uh, to potentially finding a peace uh, in Yemen. Exactly, exactly. It is the best. It is. Uh, uh, it is completely different. It is uh, um, um, uh, uh, the circumstances around it are completely different. I mean, it comes. This uh, ceasefire came at a time when there are a lot of developments in Yemen and in in Saudi Arabia, in the Emirates, in the region, in the world, in Ukraine. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, all these things um, make us um, more optimistic and uh, um, uh, more hopeful uh, that it would be, or uh, it would be translated into, uh, as I told you, into a permanent armistice and into, uh, into an, uh, an actual end for this war that distracted everything and uh, you know resulted in in the worst humanitarian crisis in the world now if you could could you talk a little bit about the uh, the history of this crisis because i think a lot of americans if they do know about it uh, they've been fed a lot of lines that i think are often coming from a pro saudi stance so I want to get your stance as someone that's in Yemen. What are you seeing? Uh, what, what, what are the things that we're hearing that aren't true? And what are the things that are really going on? Well, this is, uh, it's, uh, I can tell you um, briefly that this war is, it, it shouldn't have, it shouldn't have happened. I mean, it's Saudi Arabia, a crown prince of Saudi Arabia wanted by this war just to, to say, I am here. 
to uh, to make himself powerful man to be a, a king and he thought it would be only for for a couple of weeks and this is what he wanted it to be because united states uh, supported him obama placated them obama abused them after he made that nuclear uh, deal with iran they were saudis were very angry and obama wanted to just to placate them to appease them by saying okay you can do it for two weeks or for 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 two weeks or or one month in in yemen and you can be okay but unfortunately they ended up americans and saudis ended up in a in a bottomless quagmire. This is the quagmire they are in now. Seven years now, uh, billions of dollars were spent, hundreds of thousands were killed, um, uh, worst humani humanitarian crisis in the world is there in Yemen, and uh, Houthi uh, Houthi becoming uh, more powerful than he was and more threatening factor against Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. They started when Houthi had nothing, when Houthi can't even fire to the south of Saudi Arabia. Now he can send his drones and his missiles to the deep Saudi Arabia mainland and also uh, to the Emirates and uh, anything anywhere he wanted to strike in the in in in, in these two countries Emirates and United, uh, and Saudi Arabia so they failed to do anything unfortunately i mean americans and saudis and I'm say Americans because it was declared from there, unfortunately. The war was declared from, this is a fact. The war was declared from United, from Washington. So Yemenis, whether Houthis or not, would look at it as American war because now it's, you know, they started with all support, American support, political, military, logistic, and everything. Now, they, I mean, uh, Saudis and, uh, and Emirates and Saudi and uh, Americans, they are in, in, in a quagmire. They want to get out, but they want to, to be victorious also. But it is, it is difficult to find the solution that 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 will make you uh, look like a victorious when you are not like Saudis now. Mohammed bin Salman wants to be a victor, wants to be the victorious one in this world, but he is not because it's seven years now. Even if it's seven years, this is what I can tell you. 
it is unfortunately it is American Saudis. This is how it is viewed. This is how it is seen here. Yes, Biden came and said he would end it. He would stop. Uh, he would stop the support, the American support, and the American involvement. But he did not do. He said he would he would make Saudis a pariah. He would make Mohammed bin Salman, Mohammed bin Salman a pariah. But he did not do. He he, he never did. So uh, this is why now we look at this um, uh, ceasefire and truce as uh, something that can uh, give a lot of optimistic because the circumstances in the United States, in Saudi Arabia, in Emirates, in the region, in Iran, everywhere is completely different. So we hope the end is close, is very near. What, out of curiosity, when you say that this is completely different uh, than other times, uh, what do you mean by that? Like, what, what do you think sets uh, this ceasefire apart uh, from other moments in the yes. past seven years? Yeah, yes, I can tell you. The United States now want to end the war in Yemen as soon as possible. This is one thing. I think they are more sincere than than they were. They want to end it in a way or another, uh, but there is, a, 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 there is a disagreement or dispute between Bin Salman and Biden, how to end it, how to be friends, how to cooperate, how to, you see? So this is one thing. In the United States, there is a stronger will to end it. In Saudi Arabia and Emirates, they, they uh, ended up uh, to think that no one will win. No one will win. They, they will keep fighting. They will keep in an attrition war. So this is the, the second thing. The Saudis and Emiratis are convinced more now that they will not uh, end the war by military defeat against Houthi. This is one thing that we can understand it from, from what we see on the ground. Houthi is threatening them. Houthi attacked Abu Dhabi. At Abu Dhabi, the capital of UAE. And he attacked Riyadh and their oil installations in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi. I think these are big factors that would make me think that it's completely different now. They want to end it. Also, there is some, uh, there is a fourth one, which is uh, the fixing, the Saudi, the Saudi Arabia fixing with, uh, with Iran, with uh, Turkey, with Qatar, with Lebanon. These things also tell us that 
And now Saudi Arabia want to end it seriously, more than it was. More than it was, why? I was curious if you could talk about the the blockade uh, that Saudi Arabia has imposed on Yemen and it, the, the effects of that. Yes, this is Saudi Arabia simply, simply Saudi Arabia has not been fighting during the, the last seven years. It was fighting Yemenis only or mostly through airstrikes and blockade. And maybe more by blockade because airstrikes were not airstrikes. Saudi Arabia were fighting Yemen only by, only, I'm saying, only by airstrikes and by blockade. Airstrikes, random airstrikes, indiscriminate airstrikes, killing uh, children, women, uh, I mean, bombing uh, schools, homes, um, uh, hospitals, uh, funerals, uh, weddings, markets, water, food, and all these things. And the blockade is also used as a weapon, as a weapon in that war. So they, oh, these two things, the airstrikes and the blockade, are the things, are the two things that made the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And this is this is this was done deliberately. Saudi Arabia was aware that it was fighting Yemenis by the blockade, by the blockade. Not only by I mean by blockade, by you know by by weaponizing. I mean, I mean certainly, or specifically, I mean by this by blockade, they would use the food the daily food of the people, the water, the fuel, the medicine as a weapon in the war. Because Saudi Arabia can't, can't send army. They can't send army. They don't, they could not, they were not able to send even the Yemeni missionaries who are working with them as fighters. They couldn't, they couldn't send them because they want only their money. The Yemenis who, worked with Saudis want only the Saudi money. Not the, they don't want to be die, to die. They don't want to die. They want their money. So the blockade was the most important tool in the war. And the second thing is the airstrikes. I, I told you in, in brief about the, the, about the blockade and that it was the most important thing until today until today because you uh, you uh, Yemenis, you know no airports no boats no sea boats no sea boats no airports and no no, no airports for the people to go outside for for example treatment and no food is allowed in no food except when saudi arabia says okay 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 just because Saudi Arabia uh, would allow from time to time, would allow some, some, uh, some food to, to, to be in. Because it didn't, it didn't want you to, to die. But at the same time, it, 
wanted to 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 fight Yemen with 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 the with with its food, with the food and with um, um, the fuel and other uh, life-saving things. So th- there has been this issue then of, and I mean people can look into this, uh, my listeners, but. There are like children being affected by this, where uh, there, there's children that are being essentially malnourished uh, because they're not able to get this food uh, due to the blockade. Yes, the, the nourishment is the malnourishment of children is something that is uh, the, the, that uh, resulted from from the from the war. It's something related to the war. Uh, when we talk about children who die. Uh, because of the malnutrition, it's because of uh, it's because of the war. We have about um, say um, one child every ten minutes die because of malnutrition, and this malnutrition is related to the war, to the blockade. So, if you could, uh, you said earlier. Um... That one thing that's different now is that Saudi Arabia is having to fix things up uh, with other countries like Iran and uh, Qatar. Uh, could you explain that a bit more? What, what is Saudi Arabia have, having to do different right now uh, within the the sort of region that it's in? Yes, in uh, Iran, for example, Iran, uh, they are uh, in the fifth round of talks with Iran. Um, uh, I mean, they're in an advanced stage. I think you, uh, you, 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 you might have heard of this. And uh, with, with Turkey, you know, they, with Turkey now, they are almost um, normal. Uh, uh, Erdogan was uh, in, in Riyadh the last week. And Khashoggi, you know, Khashoggi, the journalist, the Washington Post journalist who was um, who was killed and dismembered in the in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Um, uh, the trial of those who are suspect who are suspected of uh, behind, of uh, killing him is no longer in uh, in Turkey now. It is suspended or it is unfortunately it is transferred. It is transferred now from Turkey into Riyadh, which means this is the end of the file. This is the end of uh, uh, the Khashoggi uh, uh, issue. This is the this is the beginning of the normal relations between Saudi Arabia and Turkey, because Turkey needs Saudi Arabia needs the money, the cash of Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia, of course, needs uh, Turkey for its reputation, for its uh, influence in the region, for a lot of things. So they are almost normal now. Qatar, Saudi Arabia are now in good relations with Qatar. Uh, They are almost uh, normal countries. And in Lebanon also, they are okay. The, the ambassador is back in Lebanon. And all these things are related to Turkey, uh, to, uh, I mean, the fixing in, uh, with, uh, with Turkey 
with uh, uh, Lebanon, with, uh, with Iraq also. These things are related to Iran and to Yemen at the same time. So this means that Saudi Arabia wants to guarantee its security from Iran that it would always say that they were behind the Houthi in Yemen. And then Saudi Arabia could end the war in Yemen in minutes if, if they decide. If they decide, if they okay with Iran, if they're okay with Iran, with the United States. And <laughs> so all these things make us uh, more hopeful and optimistic that this time around it's different. The ceasefire is different this time around. So I just had uh, two more main questions here. The first is, uh, as I sort of said earlier, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of Americans uh, that are under this impression that all of what is happening in Yemen, uh, because they're watching, you know, uh, the media here, uh, I think there's a lot of Americans that think, oh, this is all about Yemen supporting the Houthis. And I, could you address that? Because I, I, I think that's a vast oversimplification of um, what is happening in Yemen. I don't think that it is, it is oversimplification. I will tell you something. I think you will, I'll give you an example. I think you and your audience will understand it. I'm a secular. I am not a religious man. I'm a secular, but I'm supporting Houthi. I'm, I'm, a, I'm openly secular in Yemen. Houthi people know that I'm a secular, but I'm supporting them. So why I'm supporting Houthi? Because he is standing up to Saudi Arabia. And the, Saudi the Arabia is the invading force, really. Yeah. 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 So I think this example is okay for you to understand that it's not that easy. To look, to look at Houthi as only proxy for Iran is not right. Iran is making, is Iran is making use. Is, Iran is taking advantage of what is happening in Yemen, yes. But Houthi people and the, the people with Houthi are not proxies with Iran at all. They are defending themselves from the worst and, and dirtiest war and aggression on their country. Because Saudi Arabia is, 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 is launching an absurd and futile war in Yemen. At the time when they, when they could secure themselves, when they could gain the support of Yemenis, when they could, when they could make all Yemen friends with them, but they were, they were, they were stupid to start this war against Yemen. Just stupid. To say they are fighting Iran here is not right. It is not right. Iran is gaining. Iran is happy with the war. Iran is making advantage, taking advantage of what is going on. Yes, but not to the extent that you say Houthis and Yemenis are only proxies with Iran. No, this is not right or for Iran. Last uh, 
issue I wanted to cover with you is, you know, I know you said that there's sort of an optimistic uh, feeling right now that this ceasefire could end up holding uh, and that this could be the beginning of peace. Uh, but what do you think the, the potential threats are to the ceasefire holding? Are there any um, factors that could lead to um, what's currently looking like a, a stabilizing situation uh, deteriorating? Is there any uh, possible factors, any possible factions within Yemen or within Saudi Arabia that could muck this up? Or what is the possibility of making this war continue? I think this is your your uh, your question. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the possibility of making this war continue is Saudi Arabia uh, supporting one side and UAE supporting the other, because now you have factions, you have groups with working with Saudi Arabia and groups working with UAE and groups with Iran, let me say, Houthi. This is just the main groups, of course. There are more, there are more divisions, but let me say these are three. So if UAE and Saudi Arabia don't want to end the war, they would only support. They would only support their factions and let them fight. Let them fight against each other. And this is a possibility. This is what they have been doing over the seven years. But what would make them not do it is they would not they would not guarantee their security because Houthi now is powerful. Houthi now can strike Abu Dhabi, can strike Riyadh. They know it very well. They saw it. They saw that they saw Houthi missiles and drones inside Riyadh and inside Abu Dhabi. So this is this is a factor that would not make them do it. So what would happen then? If there is an internet, if there is American, let me say American, if there is more American well, if there is stronger American well, I think this will this will help a lot to end the war in Yemen. If America would say, okay, I would not support you anymore. Saudi Arabia would, would end the war immediately. So the most important thing that we keep saying it all the time, all along over the seven years is that United States could help end the war in Yemen by be more decisive with Saudis. And at the same time, they would they would um, uh, uh, keep and preserve their interest, of course, with the with the Saudis, of course, because they um, what is between Biden and Mohammed bin Salman is more than what is between American and Yemenis, because there is kind of 
personal things between Biden and, and Bin Salman, the crown prince. So I think the key thing is in the hand of the Americans uh, to end the war in Yemen uh, because they could end all the support, political, military, uh, weapons and uh, intelligence and everything. Like, like, like they they ended the refueling of the of the of the Saudi fighters. This is the only thing that they ended. That's the only thing that the American ended completely. You, if Saudis and the Emiratis are not willing to end the war in Yemen and support the stabilities of Yemen and uh, unified government, unified Yemen and uh, a, be um, a peaceful solution and peaceful transfer of power. If they did not support this, so if war continues, if Saudis and Emiratis support their proxies on the ground to make, to prolong the war in Yemen, this will be in favor of Qaeda and ISIS. And this will not be in the interest of United States. Ending the war in Yemen would mean fighting Qaeda and ISIS, or almost ending also Qaeda and ISIS, because Saudis and Emiratis have been have been using Qaeda and ISIS in their in their in their fight in their war on the ground, and there are a lot of stories, a lot of stories known to everyone, that Qaeda and ISIS are fighting along along the Saudi forces, along the Emirati forces, in many different places. So it is in the interest of the United States to support end the war in Yemen. For ending the terrorism of Qaeda and ISIS. So there are, uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, I guess, is in the mix of what is happening right now. There are these sort of yeah. Al-Qaeda factions. Yes, yes, there, there is, yes, they are, they are fighting alongside uh, Saudi forces and Emirati forces. There were a lot of, not just talking. Um, CNN came to Yemen and, uh, and uh, talked about this. Um, and uh, we saw, we know the fighters, we know uh, the recruits and all these things. So. Uh, Qaeda and ISIS are being used by by Saudis and Emiratis, unfortunately, because they know that ISIS and Qaeda are enemies of, of Houthi. And the only enemy, the biggest enemy of Qaeda and ISIS is Houthi, is the Houthi. Well, uh, Nasser Arabi, I want to thank you for coming on uh, parallax views. Is there anything you would like to say in closing? And also, how can my listeners keep up with your work? I believe you're on Twitter, and uh, you also have the website Yemen Now. Yes. And is there anything you would like to add in closing uh, to say to my audience or how they can keep up with your work? Yes, uh, I would like to th thank you very much for your uh, interest in Yemen. And I, I would like to tell you all that this is helping a lot uh, in um, in uh, making and drawing attention about what's going on in Yemen, and this will help um, a lot. Um, you know, 
the the worst humanitarian crisis in Yemen is the responsibility of the world. This is what I want to say. It is the responsibility of everyone in the world because uh, people don't want work. They want to live like anyone. They want to live like anyone. People, women, children, they don't want war. This war is just uh, imposed on, on Yemenis by, by these uh, international and regional forces and uh, politics, unfortunately. So I hope uh, the free people in the world would help us to end this war and to, to, to make Yemen be like any country. Thank you very much. Palestinians are living under a system of laws and rules that discriminate against them based on one principal factor, the fact that they are Palestinian. We're talking about a series of human rights violations that are committed with a specific intention to maintain racial domination over a group. Palestinians are systematically deprived of their rights, uh, both collective and in many cases individual rights. We are denied to go into Palestine just because we are Palestinians. I don't know if that's not apartheid. What is apartheid? What you just heard were excerpts from a sneak peek of the new documentary from Mondo Weiss and Yumna Patel entitled Inside Israeli Apartheid. Yumna joins us to discuss this brand new documentary available now on YouTube free of charge that tackles the question of apartheid in relation to Israel and Palestine. It's a topic that in recent years has gained a lot of attention thanks to human rights groups, among them Amnesty International using the A-word apartheid in relation to Israel. So with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Yumna Patel about her new documentary, Inside Israeli Apartheid, now available on YouTube. Many thanks, by the way, to Phil Weiss and Mondo Weiss for helping make this conversation with Yumna possible. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been wanting to have on for a while, and she has a new documentary out, so now is the perfect time. Uh, Yumna Patel of Mondo Weiss, where she serves as the Palestine News Director, and the mind behind the documentary Inside Israeli Apartheid, the new documentary from Mondo Weiss. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. So, Yumna, if you could... Could you talk a little bit about your background and um, maybe how this documentary came to be? Sure. So, um, I mean, first and foremost, I am an American journalist. I've been living in Palestine, uh, reporting here for the past six years, um, and I've been with Mondo Weiss for um, the past four years. Um I mean, the inspiration, I guess you could say, behind this documentary was 
uh, just the, the situation in Palestine, you know, for years, I personally, like in my reporting, have been witnessing all these different um, policies that Palestinians are subjected to by the Israeli government living under occupation and then also, you know, Palestinian communities inside Israel. Most recently in the past year, a number of human rights organizations, both Israeli and some of the world's leading international human rights organizations, including Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, basically came out and accused Israel of the crime of apartheid or committing apartheid against Palestinians. So this is something that, you know, Palestinians and Palestinian human rights groups have been saying for a long time. But with these new reports and designations from these global human rights groups that definitely um, sort of gave us a little bit of a push to say, you know, we really do need to do something about this and have a really comprehensive um report in in video form where people can come and see sort of the way that Israeli apartheid affects Palestinians in their everyday life um, and also just sort of like break down the all the policies that are in place to to make it sort of easily understandable for for ordinary people. So what do you think some of the biggest I would say misperceptions, misconceptions, misunderstandings or even uh, you know, propaganda and myths that people have in uh, places like the U.S. when it comes to uh, Palestine? Sure. So, I mean, I would say like the biggest sort of misconception that frames a lot of the way that people view Palestine or think about what's happening in Palestine is the misconception that you have two states, right, Israel and Palestine living side by side as neighbors. So when you're treating these, when you're treating these entities at two as two, you know, equal state parties that are living by side by side, um, that sort of clouds the whole way in which people look at and, and understand Palestine. The reality is that you know you have this entire territory from the Jordanian River, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, which is split up into different geographical units. Um, but essentially, the entire territory from the river to the sea is under Israeli control and is under differing degrees of Israeli control. So even in places like the West Bank and Gaza, which as we understand and as the world understands is under the control of the Palestinian Authority, right, which people view as the sovereign Palestinian government, even in places where the Palestinian Authority has sort of bureaucratic power, Israel still controls and maintains control over borders, population registry, resources. Um, so that means that at the end of the day, even where, quote unquote, you know, Palestinian government or leadership is in place, the major systems at play are all controlled by Israel. And Israel sort of dictates how life goes in those places. So it's really important for people to understand that um, these are not sort of like two equal state parties that are living in side by side and have conflict with one another. You have the Israeli state, which is occupying Gaza, the West Bank and East Jerusalem, and is also implementing a set of rules for its own Palestinian citizens that discriminate against them. I want to get into that more because I think we can talk about the West Bank and Gaza and 
East Jerusalem. But I, I think the documentary, having watched it, um, I was very happy with the premiere yesterday and, and getting to see it. I, I think a lot of people uh, don't always think about, um, you know, actions Israel has taken even outside of uh, Gaza or the West Bank. Could you speak to that a little bit, the, the ways in which there's discrimination that goes even beyond those territories that we talk about a lot in the media? Sure. So something to keep in mind, and this is something that um, one of our human rights experts that we spoke to in the documentary, Rania Muharab, this is something that she highlighted, is that over the years, Israel has systematically divided and fragmented the Palestinian people into these different geographic regions. And what that does, um, you know, is that fragmentation plays an essential role in apartheid, as Rania puts it. So when you treat the Palestinian people as this sort of fragmented population, that only plays into Israel's favor of sort of maintaining domination over these different groups. Um, and when we're looking at apartheid, and this is something that Amnesty International, Beit Salem, and Human Rights Watch have all highlighted, is that included in that definition are Palestinian citizens of Israel. So there are around 2 million Palestinians who carry Israeli citizenship, and they make up around 20% of the Israeli population. And what these reports have said and shown is that even though, you know, you have these 2 million Palestinians that carry Israeli citizenship, they're still discriminated against in a very, you know, in various numbers of ways in their daily lives, whether that comes to, you know, zoning po policies that they're subjugated to for their communities, access to jobs, education, et cetera, resources. Um, so that's what we mean when we say that Israel is employing an apartheid system across the entire area from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. So it's that wherever you are, whatever papers you hold, whether you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel or a resident of Gaza, your rights are inferior to the rights of Jewish Israelis or Jewish persons living in those same places. And the reason I say um, Jewish persons, not just Jewish Israelis, is because that if you are um, an American Jew, you could move to Israel tomorrow and you would still have more, before you got citizenship, you would still have more rights than all the Palestinians that are living there. So that's why it's really important. Um, and this is something that these rights groups have, have said, including Beit Salem, which is this, uh, the leading Israeli human rights group, is that it's a, it's a system of Jewish supremacy on the land. So everywhere across the land, wherever it is, and throughout Israel's laws, um, the systems and laws are designed to favor one group, which is Jews over the other Palestinians. If you could, uh, when you're when you're trying to talk about this subject to maybe um, people that are unfamiliar with it, like what are the concrete examples you would give to someone that's new to the subject uh, when it comes to issues like um, the inequities when it comes to uh, just basic rights? Sure. So one of the maybe starkest examples, and this is something that we highlight in the documentary, is when it comes to families and the right to life as a family and the rights to marriage. So people would be really surprised to know that Israel controls really intimate parts of Palestinian family lives. So Israel has a 
law in place, essentially a ban on what's called family unification. So this means that um, a Palestinian citizen of Israel, so let's say someone living in Haifa, for example, um, so they are a Palestinian that holds Israeli citizenship. Let's say they fell in love with someone from Nablus, for example, and they wanted to get married. Israeli law denies the right of naturalization to the Palestinian spouse from the West Bank. So that means that even though they've married someone with an Israeli with Israeli citizenship, they are ineligible for Israeli citizenship, which forces a lot of families to live apart. Um, this also this law also affects lots of Palestinian families from within the occupied territories itself. Right. So if you had uh, a Palestinian from Jerusalem who wanted to marry a Palestinian from the West Bank, there are a number of. Um, of roadblocks that are put in their place to allow them to live together as a family. So some of those are, for example, if the Palestinian from Jerusalem were to move with their spouse to the West Bank, Israel would then have grounds to revoke their Jerusalem residency because they cannot prove center of life in Jerusalem. And that would make the Palestinian from Jerusalem stateless. So they wouldn't have any papers anymore. At the same time, the person from the West Bank, the spouse from the West Bank would not be able to go and live with the spouse from Jerusalem in Jerusalem because Israel does not allow Palestinians from the West Bank to go to Jerusalem without special permission. So this presents a huge roadblock to, to thousands of Palestinian families who are separated by these borders and different ID cards. And on the flip side, that none of these laws apply to Jewish persons. So if you are an Israeli, if you are a Jewish Israeli, you could marry someone from anywhere in the world and they would qualify for Israeli citizenship. And, you, and once they got Israeli citizenship, they would have full rights under the law and you could live with them wherever you wanted. So let's say that you um, are an Israeli family, one spouse is from Israel, for example, and the other spouse is from America. The American spouse would get citizenship immediately and they would be allowed to live wherever they wanted. So they could live in Tel Aviv, they could live in a settlement in Nablus, they could live in a settlement in East Jerusalem, um, even though those settlements are under are illegal under international law. So that's sort of like one of the starkest examples, just even who, like the right to marry. Israel controls who Palestinians can marry based off of the IDs they have, whereas Jewish Israelis have the freedom to marry whoever they want and live with full rights uh, with their family, wherever they choose. Could you talk a little bit more about the settlements? I found that portion of the documentary very interesting where uh, there's a huge growth of settlements on one side, but not the other. And, and there really is an inequity there. Mm -hmm. So since essentially since 1948, when after the Nakba, when Israel was established, um, the Israeli government instituted a number of laws that a prevented Palestinian refugees who were kicked out of Palestine from returning to their homes. And at the same time, simultaneously promoted Jewish settlement and immigration to Israel. Um, and the expropriation of Palestinian land 
and giving that Palestinian land to its new Jewish citizens. So that's sort of like the overarching framework with which to understand how Israel implements its land policies. So something that's really interesting is within the borders of Israel, so that's not including the occupied West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. So just in what is considered um, the borders of Israel since 1948, Israel has not built a single new community for its Palestinian citizens. So just think about that. You're talking about 74 years. And so there's you have 2 million Palestinians, citizens of Israel. They are only living in communities that existed at the time that the state was created. Their population has continued to grow, but their communities have been unable to expand a lot to afford, you know, to accommodate their population growth because Israel does not allow for the creation of new Palestinian towns and, and, and villages or local councils. At the same time, you know, since 1948, hundreds of new Jewish towns and communities have been built and zoned for inside Israel and the occupied territories. So when you're talking about settlements in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem, these are basically Jewish colonies that have been created in deep within occupied territory um, that Israel promotes, you know, the immigration of its the of its Jewish citizens to those colonies. And that is something that is illegal under international law, which is the promotion promoting the settlement of your civilian population into an occupied territory. And so across the West Bank, you know, since Israel occupied the West Bank in 1968, it's approved the construction of hundreds of Jewish settlements across the West Bank, while at the same time restricting Palestinian building and construction. So within the West Bank, the West Bank is split up into many different areas. So you have areas areas A, B, and C. And these were sort of, these areas were split up uh, after the Oslo Accords. Area C is the area of the West Bank that Israel has complete control over, both security and civilian control. And that constitutes for more than 60% of the West Bank. So the majority of construction that you see, settlement construction that you see in the West Bank is in area C. So Jewish Israelis are free to move to the West Bank build homes, start new settlements, expand existing settlements, while at the same time, Palestinians who live in Area C have a blanket ban of construction put over them. So you are, if you are Palestinian, you are not allowed to build a home in Area C without getting prior permission from the Israeli government, which is almost impossible to obtain. So I'm curious with, with, your personal reporting on this, what, what, what's been the most, I guess, shocking um, things that you've reported on or what really um, maybe shook you and uh, made you, um, I guess, look at this issue more closely, um, especially since you're reporting on the ground, so. Mm -hmm. I would say um, one of the cases that has stood out to me definitely over the years as I've, I've heard about it. And now recently, as we were able to, to report on it in this documentary, is the case of a Palestinian fishing town called Jisr Zarqa. And it's a fishing town on the Mediterranean coast, and it's inside Israeli territory. So the Palestinians that live there are Israeli citizens. They hold Israeli citizenship. 
Um, and essentially what has happened is you have this, this fishing village that has been completely surrounded on all sides by Israeli towns, cities, roads, and other infrastructure. And the people in this village are essentially being strangled on all sides because while the population has continued to grow over the years, Israel has refused to approve new um, zoning plans and permissions for the expansion of the village, right? So you have uh, this village, just like, you know, towns and villages in the West Bank is subject to home demolitions, even though they're Palestinian, even though they have Israeli citizenship, their homes are being destroyed at a disproportionate rate compared to the Jewish localities surrounding them. So while the Palestinians living in Jisr al-Zarqa cannot get permission to build new houses and expand their village and are constantly subject to home demolitions, the Israeli towns right next door are have received the appropriate zoning permissions from the Israeli municipalities and from the government to accommodate their population growth over the years. And so there's this really just stark example of what we're talking about when we talk about apartheid. You have two towns right right next door to each other, one Palestinian, one Israeli. They both hold Israeli citizenship, but one community, the Palestinian community, is living in severe poverty, suffering from high levels of unemployment, high levels of, of home demolitions, etc., while the, the Israeli town next door is flourishing. And as they've been you know, afforded all the rights and permissions by the Israeli government to expand and grow and flourish as, as they please. So it, it was interesting. I like that you you had mentioned um, the Nakba earlier, and I may have listeners. I'm always surprised by um, how many people are unfamiliar with a lot of these topics. And I, I guess I was wondering, why do you think there is, um, you know, in certain ways, uh, a lack of knowledge uh, that people, especially in the West, have about these issues? Is it just... Um, issues like media propaganda being being something? Is it, um, you know, uh, racism? Or, or do you think maybe I'm uh, being too pessimistic and maybe uh, the word is getting out there and people are becoming more understanding and learning about things like the Nakba? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's a mix of both, right? I think for years, the, you know, Western media and the media establishment, particularly in the U.S., has held an extremely staunch sort of pro-Israel bias and a, a pro-Israeli approach to their reporting. So, I mean, I think that it's, it's no surprise then that as a result, um, many Americans know about Israel and Israeli independence, as it's called, but don't know that as a consequence of the creation of the state of Israel, you have this whole thing called the Nakba or the catastrophe, right? As, as it means in, in English, where when Israel was created, you had at least you know, 750,000 Palestinians who were expelled from their homeland and who became refugees. You have thousands more who were massacred. You have hundreds of villages that were pillaged and destroyed and wiped off the map in this process. And I think there was a very concerted effort, not only on Israel's part, but also you know, the media and organizations who are sort of complicit in this narrative of suppressing the Palestinian narrative and, and, and suppressing pressing 
the, the truth essentially of what happened when Israel was created, because now you have, you know, those 750,000, it's estimated that it's actually more, but those 750,000 Palestinian refugees, now their descendants number over 5 million. So you have more than 5 million Palestinian refugees living, um, in exile, essentially, people who are unable to, to return to their homeland. I think now, um, as you know, we've seen a shift in sort of the media landscape with social media, um, there's more room for um, other voices and sort of alternative media where um, maybe the Palestinian narrative or Palestinian stories are given more of a platform. So now people are hopefully becoming more aware of the history and sort of the current reality. So with regards to uh, current events right now, um, in, in regards to Palestine and Israel, uh, what do you think the, the, the most important, and I know this is outside of the documentary itself, but what, what do you think the most important um, stories that people should be following are? Because I mean, we have last month, uh, everything that was happening at um, Al-Aqsa Mosque, you know, there's there's always stories coming out about Naftali Bennett. What, what do you think people should really be honing in on right now? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I think something that people just need to keep in mind is like, as you mentioned, you know, always, you know, in, in the weeks surrounding Ramadan and uh, Passover, et cetera, we inevitably see um, lots of news coverage coming out of Al-Aqsa and Jerusalem, et cetera. But people should know that these, these attacks on like Palestinian life and presence in Jerusalem and across, you know, occupied Palestine are not relegated just to like a few weeks out of the year. You know, the, the ongoing ethnic cleansing of Palestine is an ongoing process. It's something that's happening every day in every corner of Palestine. So even after Ramadan, right, just yesterday, Israeli forces attacked the Al-Aqsa Mosque again. So they're attacking Palestinian worshipers in order to facilitate the passage um, of Jewish settlers so that they can tour the compound. So that's definitely an important story to watch. It's not something that's just happening in Ramadan. There's a clear effort um, on part of the Israeli government and Israeli authorities to sort of change the, the status quo at the site and, and change the whole nature um, of the site itself. Also right now, just late on Wednesday night, the Israeli high court essentially approved or greenlit um, the forcible expulsion of more than a thousand Palestinians from the Masafa Riyata area uh, in the South Hebron Hills, which is in the, the Southern occupied West Bank. And this was sort of the culmination of a 20 year legal battle where these communities were fighting against um, Israeli government efforts to expel them from their lands. And now the Israeli high court, which is essentially Israel's Supreme Court, right? This is supposed to be like the highest purveyor of justice in the land is essentially saying that the Israeli military can now um, demolish the homes and expel over a thousand Palestinians, which would constitute uh, as a grave human rights violation under international law, you know, forcible expulsion is a, is a crime under international law. And so we're seeing 
you know, the highest Israeli court, the highest, you know, legal authority in the land, sort of just green light um, grave human rights violations. So that's another real important story to watch and something that people should keep their eyes on, because essentially what this means now that this court decision is through any day now, um, this entire communities can just be wiped off the map. I just had two more questions. Um, the first, you know, in reporting on this topic and, and talking to Palestinians, um, what do you think uh, people may not understand about, uh, I guess, the end goal? Like, what what do Palestinians want? Because I think, uh, you know, there, there's this narrative, oh, the Israelis and the Palestinians, they've just, it's ancient hatreds. And I really don't think that's what's at work. Mm -hmm. And I also think Palestinians just, they want to be free. Um, I, I don't yeah. think it's about getting revenge or anything like that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard, right? As someone who's not Palestinian, I refrain from just saying like what Palestinians want, but I will comment, I guess, and like what I've gathered from my years here and from reporting here. And I would say that the end goal for Palestinians is to achieve freedom and liberation, right? Because for the past, you know, 74 years, Palestinians have been living under systems of apartheid, occupation, ethnic cleansing, et cetera. And so, yeah, I mean, the framing it in this sort of, like you said, this sort of ancient sort of hatred maybe towards one another, or like framing it as this ancient conflict um, is a disservice to the reality of actually what's happening. Um, and what, what we're seeing today is just a culmination of you know, modern, the modern political Zionist project right in Palestine and the Israeli goal. I mean, the Zionist goal from the beginning has been to have to take this land, have a land without a people. Right. So they want the land like they want the land, but without the Palestinian people that come with it. Um, and that's what it comes down to. And that's what Palestinians are sort of fighting against. Like they're fighting for their survival. They're fighting for their their rights. They're fighting for for the claims to the land that that, you know, that they've lived on for for hundreds of years. So the last uh, thing I wanted to touch upon um, with regards to the documentary itself inside Israeli apartheid, what do you hope uh, people get out of it? And, and what would you say to people that, you know, still debate or are afraid to use uh, the term apartheid when it comes to these issues. Uh, what do you say to those people? And also, what do you want folks to get out of the documentary? Yeah, so, I mean, I'll, I'll start off with, I mean, I guess what I would say to people who still sort of deny the um, apartheid designation, I would just say, you know, look at the facts, right? Not only the facts that are presented in this documentary, but the, the facts that are being presented by the world's leading, you know, human rights organizations, that there is a clear definition of apartheid under international law and the systems and laws that Israel has put in place clearly adhere to the crime of apartheid under international law. There's no way around it. You know, apartheid is not unique to South Africa. It's just firmly a definition of international law that many different states, depending on the situation, can actually um, be, can adhere to. So that's what I would say maybe to, to people who are still 
saying, oh, you know, this isn't apartheid. I would just say, you know, actually legal experts disagree. Also, um, for the main takeaway, I mean, yeah, I just want people to, the main takeaway would be that I hope that people understand um, that this is not sort of like a two sides issue. This is not two states in conflict with each other as it has been sort of framed and presented to us through the media for, for many years. Um, there are clear human rights violations and abuses that are happening every single day. You have sort of one um, source of power that is controlling you know, these different populations. Um, and the way that they live their lives every day. And I hope that this video will not only open people's eyes to what's happening, but also can hopefully like serve as a resource um, for people for years to come when, we're, when we continue this conversation about Israeli apartheid, because I don't think this is, um, I, I think this is just the beginning, you know? So we are still at the beginning of this conversation and I hope that this documentary will um, sort of hope to push that conversation forward a little bit and, and get people talking about what's happening. Well, I wanna thank you, Yumna Patel for coming on Parallax Views. I really, really, really highly recommend uh, everyone listening to this episode, check out the documentary and also uh, keep up with the work you're doing at uh, Mondo Weiss um, and everyone else at Mondo Weiss because that's a really fun, great website. Uh, maybe not, well, not always fun. It's covering the darker stuff, but it's, uh, it's a really invaluable resource. And I really appreciate the work you're doing as the Palestine News Director there. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with William Hoagland, Nasser Arabi, and Yumna Patel of Mondo Weiss. As always, if you appreciate the work here I'm doing at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. All the information you need to make a monthly donation to help keep this podcast going is available there. It is you, the listener, that makes this show possible. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. 
I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.